Hey everyone, this is Phil, your friendly neighborhood host of this podcast. Now, before we get on to this episode, I just want to mention how you can support us at High Five Adventure. Now, High Five has seen firsthand the ongoing impact of the pandemic on students and teachers. There has never been a more urgent time to support classrooms and communities as they rebuild. You can help High Five reach teach and transform the lives of young people with a gift of any size. You can donate online by visiting our website at highfiveadventure.org. That's H-I-G-H, the number five, adventure.org. And click on the support us at the very top of the page. From everyone at High Five and myself, thank you so much for your support. And on to the episode. This is Vertical Playpen, and I'm your host, Phil. This is part two of the shared experience. I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's just get straight on to the episode. How is the great resignation affecting the field of experiential education? And I'm going to add my two cents. Oh, Sam's jumped in, but I'm going to add mine real quickly. That I think that that people are making decisions, new decisions, different decisions on on what a reevaluation on what is important to them. That's what I've noticed in in conversations with people. It's like, are you able to really spend time with your family more? Are you getting the flexibility that's helpful to you? Are you earning a salary that you think is representative of the amount of effort and work you put into it? And I think all of these questions are great questions for us to have and to be discussing because I think that Our industry at this current moment in time is incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable. People are looking for the stuff that we can provide. And I hate to see the number of um, references that I've had to give to people um, who are entering fields that are not necessarily ours anymore for the reasons that I suggested before. So I think it's a great question. I hope that we can continue to talk about it. Sam. I I think the great resignation to me is challenging us in some good ways. And I think we've, we've actually heard it coming for a while. I think FLSA uh, laws that changed a couple administrations ago um, really put some stresses on certain industries. Although I'm not active with the youth summer camping industry, I, I see that as one of the areas that really had to look inside. And so I think that pay rates are something that our industry is going to really have to focus in on and, the feeling of, of being compensated for your work to the level uh, that you feel you need to be is something that is, is going to challenge uh, our industry for a long time. I'm seeing it on college campus like crazy. I don't think that it's that college kids have too much money or they're benefiting from stimuluses and other things that have been going on. Uh, I think it's actually uh, that they're, they're not interested in minimum wage work anymore. I'm very well connected to the summer camp world as we do a lot of trainings for summer camps. And that's been the big discussion at the moment. They're struggling to hire year after year. It's, it's getting worse and there has to be a reevaluation that maybe it's because they're not paying them enough. You can't, we can't say it's all about the experience. That's the selling point was like, you get all of this out of it, but you know, that's not enough. David. Uh, hi, uh, David Maskell from, from the future. Uh, as you can see, the sun is just coming up behind me here. It's, coming to you, to you from uh, to south of Brisbane on the Gold Coast. The great resignation here is reflected in the industry being 
we had a very short, sharp lockdown initially, but then we went back to work um, within about four months of uh, COVID starting uh, back in March of last year. And apart from places like Sydney, uh, New South Wales to a great extent and Victoria, um, most of the country's been working. Uh, and the great resignation, whilst it's very much not talked about here in those terms, it's affecting us here in that we don't have enough staff anymore in the outdoor sector to actually cover the demand, um, especially now places like um, Victoria going back to work uh, for the last couple of weeks of school-based camps. Staffing rates are so low that it's forcing wages quite high compared to previous years, and it's forcing a cultural change. Uh, there are a couple of Facebook groups where you can go and find regular work that's been advertised outside of the regular paid meetings uh, online to find jobs. And uh, those groups are now saying explicitly, if you don't put in your daily rate or your hourly rate, have you pay your staff, we're going to take down your ad. Uh, it's a free service. It's a Facebook group. But the expectation now is that employers have to actually be upfront about where you're going, what you're going to get paid for the day, what you're going to do. And it's now, obviously now, are you double backs uh, or is that a requirement for the job? And um, it's actually been a trending topic all year um, that uh, uh, myself and other people in, uh, have been looking at and working towards. And uh, it's just a bit, uh, it's, it's a fascinating reflection of the, um, the change that we've had culturally that um, a lot of people left the industry at the yeah, start of the pandemic because outdoor education, experiential education, whatever you want to call it in this country, definitely um, stopped, stopped cold and didn't get a lot of government support and had to really, um, uh, a lot of people have gone on to other parts of their uh, their resume and uh, have not returned for lots of reasons, early, early, uh, related to definitely um, salaries and work-life balance um, and just reflecting it's now too hard, I'm going to go and do something else. And even though the work is now back, uh, they haven't returned. So, um, And it's quite a challenge for the, uh, for the sector as such and the, uh, Quite a few of the uh, big uh, state-based peer industry groups are looking at it closely about why why that's happened and how do we fix it in the short and the long term. How do we encourage um, school leaders to look at outdoor recreation, outdoor education as a career pathway as opposed to going on to a higher paid and better represented career as a tradesperson or you know, through a university degree to a professional career. Um, outdoor education here. Uh, is not seen as an out, as a as a career that's going to take you into uh, money and wealth and uh, yeah happiness ultimately. From your perspective, David, do you have any idea of what solutions could happen? What what you perceive as being fixes for some of this? I, I think in the short term, definitely uh, it has driven driven uh, daily prices up. Um, to give you an example, uh, I'm now in a full time position here on the Gold Coast with a stool, uh, but I used to be in the freelance market and. Yeah, if I was out on expedition mode uh, doing a camp program, so not so much uh, a day-to-day uh, leadership program, but an expedition, yeah, I'd be yeah value it anywhere between three fifty to four hundred dollars a day um, here in Queensland. But to do exactly the same job in Victoria, it was two hundred dollars or two fifty as the top of the rate. Uh, factors that drive that in Victoria and New South Wales is there's a curriculum-based outdoor education side of schooling down there whereas in Queensland it's not curriculum linked so there's a lot of uh, undergraduates and young people who are willing to do the work for less money because they're doing it for the experience and because it's fun and because we frame the industry where our own work enemies we frame it even now there are ads currently online saying you know want a challenging but fun career 
all about, you know, working the outdoors, but being fun. And it's like not treating the, uh, the industry as it's a professional career. You need to learn how to manage risks and work with people, work in teams, work independently, be good at Excel. If you, if you're driving the catering program, for your organization, you, you've got to have, you've got to be able to get on zoom and be able to present uh, the people. So there's a, there's a multitude of stuff, even if you're still an industry beginner, as opposed to someone like me, I've been around for yeah, um, 26 years. But I think we definitely value ourselves in the way we self-promote and how we, and that's where it starts. Um, as a solution, um, currently, nationally, we've been uh, good as a sector coming together in lots of Zoom meetings uh, using the platform uh, as, a, as a consequence of, of the pandemic and uh, organising ourselves into interest groups who are looking long-term at these issues and having, you know, yeah, weekly or monthly meetings and then reporting back to each other and then coming back and reporting from different um, areas. And that's nationally. And we've never done that before. It's been about 25 years since seriously the country looked at wages and conditions as a, as a problem that we could maybe find a solution for. Uh, we're not unionised as a country in this sector at least. You know, we're not waterfront workers. So we, we just all are independent contractors or we work under an award that's based at the school or centre you work at. Or in some cases, you're under an award that doesn't have anything to do with the outdoors or experiential education. And in those cases, you might be finding if you're working for you know, very low wages because you're, you're under an award that's not reflective of the fact you're doing you know, 18 to 20 hour days when you're out in the bush if you, that's what your job entails. Or you're capped at a certain daily rate and you just work the hours of the day that's required. So if you're up at three in the morning doing a Zoom, that's what you're doing. From the perspective of someone who's got a job, I'm pushing those agendas to keep going uh, so we can get more people to come in to replace me because I'm getting old and I want to stop carrying a pack and walking up and down hills. I want to employ other people to do that. And there is still lots of undergraduates coming into the industry, but equally there's a number my age and younger who have left and um, uh, will not be back. Yeah, I think something that you suggested earlier, uh, David, I think is, the, is, is something that maybe we miss is a career pathway. Where's the start? Where's the end? And is the and do we have a clear identifying plan to to get us from that point to that point, instead of having to jump around as much? John, so I can't address specifically the uh, experiential education industry, but more organizationally wise. Um, so I've been looking this a bit. The 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 it's also called the Great Reshuffle, and from a worker's perspective, they're not resigning; they're going someplace else. And so an organization has to realize it's you know what. The, there's more jobs than there are people to take them, which means it's the employee's market and choice out there. And right now, during what, what I think has happened and some research suggests that during this time, during the lockdown, whatever you want to call it, people had a chance to evaluate their current situation and found it lacking in one of two areas. And this is where, if we want to engage in a longer conversation of why uh, Maslow's wrong and Herzberg's better, we can do that. Hey friends, Phil here. I just want to jump in real quickly to elaborate on what John is talking about. Maslow and Herzberg's theories of motivation. We've got Abraham Maslow on one side, we've got Frederick Herzberg. There's some differences between their theories. Maslow's needs hierarchy theory is a general theory on motivation which states that the urge to satisfy needs is the most important factor in motivation. And Herzberg's two-factor theory on motivation says that there are various factors existing at the workplace that causes job satisfaction or dissatisfaction. 
Those are based on intrinsic motivators and extrinsic hygiene factors. But Herzberg model talks about motivators and hygiene factors. And for a lot of the people in, in like fast food service industries, they didn't have any motivating factors. It wasn't meaningful work and they were being abused in their job. So I said, I'm going to go find something that's more meaningful. For a lot of times in our type, type of work, there's, not, there's all kinds of motivating factors. It's value work. It's important, all that kind of stuff. But the hygiene factors are really low as far as pay, safety, you get hurt a lot, security of where you're living, what you're going to do. Those are really low. And so people have had a chance to evaluate what they want to do. And so from an organizational standpoint, it's not the external culture that you got to worry about. You've got to become an employer of choice because now there's multiple organizations that they can go to, the uh, facilitators and guides can go to, and you've got to be that organization that they want to be at. And you've got to let your, you've got to, culture is a whole nother thing, but you've got to take a look at your organization, be a place that people want to be at because of what you're doing, how they're being taken care of and how flexible you can be with them because you're not going to be able to compete. Fast food is in, in the States, at least minimum wage isn't even an issue because they're offering 18 to $20 an hour plus a signing bonus. And if you're competing with that for summer camp, you can't compete with that. So you have to work on how do you not only know what your culture is, make adjustments to your system to reveal a different culture, and then be honest and accurate in how you how you share to a potential workforce who you are and what they'll do. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, John. Dan? Uh, yeah, thanks, Phil. I asked a question because I was actually hired by an outdoor education program to do some research and make some recommendations on what tweaks to their compensation structure might help solve the severe staffing crisis they were facing. And so it just kind of opened up my eyes to this whole world. I did a lot of one-on-ones and focus groups with outdoor educators around the country. Uh, and I think to both of your questions, Phil, like what, how does this affecting our industry and what might be the solution? I would say my my favorite thing that's coming out of this is uh, an increase in empathy. And I'll try to kind of illustrate that in a couple ways. One, I talked to a lot of field instructors who maybe they didn't get paid much, but they got housing and they got food and they got community. And that felt like stability, which is really valuable to a lot of people. And when the pandemic hit and when outdoor education kind of froze around the country and around the world, first they lost their their pay and then their community started to kind of dwindle away as a lot of people got furloughed and laid off. And then eventually their housing got taken away, too, because they weren't allowed to exist in a group living situation and they had to find a place to isolate. So all of a sudden, these people who had put all of their eggs in the outdoor education or the camp basket lost all of their eggs and really caused many of them to rethink like how is this a good bet for my future and for my life or is it possible that this great positive work that I'm going to be doing could all just disappear in the blink of an eye and maybe I need to consider you know what my backup plan is so hearing those stories definitely raised the level of empathy in me and hearing some of the answers 
you know, to those problems that organizations are facing, I think, raised the level of empathy from higher ups in the organization that had to actually put themselves in the shoes of their staff for a moment. And when you really do that, whether you're an outdoor ed program or a fast food restaurant, I think it causes a shift in how you're willing to treat your employees, right? Your your family, right? Your fellow human beings. And the other piece that I think is interesting and, and super positive as a result of this is that in, in the old world, uh, which I think will be very clearly the old world pretty soon, where camp counselors make two to $300 a week. And when I started out as an intern at Outward Bound, I was making $15 a day. That Speaking for myself, I was able to do those jobs because I have a certain level of privilege in my life. And, you know, I always had a couch to fall back on. I had parents with a really stable situation that I knew when things didn't work out for me or if I was going to take a, you know, a, a break from work for a few months, I had a place to be. I didn't have bills to pay. I wasn't having to contribute to a household And so that's the other piece of the empathy that I think is rising up in our industry is realizing that the old model of pay for outdoor ed and camp uh, staff and and experiential education in general is in itself a barrier to a lot of individuals who would love to do this work, but simply can't because what organizations were willing to pay was far from a living wage. And so while it's, it's a weird, difficult time, I think it's an amazing awakening that is happening right now, especially at the administration level of a lot of these experiential ed and outdoor ed programs. Yeah, very well said, Dan. I, I think that uh, a lot of what you were saying very much resonates. I think if we want to keep the industry going, we have to analyze some of these things and think about those things that aren't working. And the pandemic has allowed for illumination in lots of different areas, globally, uh, socially, but also industry-wide for us. Like It's illuminated certain things. And we'd certainly, from my perspective, I trained too many wonderful facilitators to lose them to, to other industries because we haven't got the capacity or the ability to keep them around. My job and any, anyone here is a trainer of any, anything related to our industry. That's what I do day in, day out is teach people and then send them off to jobs that don't exist or to salaries that aren't high enough. And it it certainly hurts um, when I hear people not sticking around. So thanks, Dan. And thanks for everyone uh, contributing to that question. I think it's an important one. Well, let's go for uh, one more. This was sent to, to me by Lisa. Lisa, do you want to share your question, speak to it? Um, rather than me read it out? I mean, yes. So I can read what I wrote and then I can add a little context. So I wrote, what are we taking into consideration now as facilitators that we weren't pre-pandemic? Not in terms of technology, Zoom, any of that stuff, but what, what have we learned about groups? And I would say like we are all members of groups and social systems and what folks might need now that we are working in a sort of during and quote, I realize in quotes, post pandemic world. If you're standing with a group in February of 2020 and you're standing with a group now, how are you just fundamentally approaching them differently than you were then? David, you've got your hand up. We were really lucky in Australia. We didn't have a lot of lockdown and, but it's still 
if you're working with a, a client group um, and I am one of those people where the client group has, has missed a year of camp. So they're five days out in the bush um, doing life skill development and all the things that go with camp, whether it's intentionally facilitated or not, they miss that segment in that year for them. And in some cases here in Australia, we had two years because we had bushfires uh, for students who uh, were being impacted um, in February, March, uh, right before the pandemic, and then we had lockdowns again in 2021. So I'm now looking at doing programming and planning for next year's programs, and I'm talking to my boss about it, and I'm saying we've got to recognise that next year's year nines, who we want to put on a trans year and put out in the tent for a night, haven't used a trans year yet, haven't used the stove to cook on by themselves. They missed both of their previous year's camps because of bushfires, <laughs> climate change, and pandemic. And we need to restructure that. So it's really having that massive impact in a established program for me to have to push the, um, or suggest that we need to change and modify the program to make it easier, even though they're ready for that physically uh, by being 15 years old for that level of challenge that's traditionally been in that program. Mentally they're not because they've not had the skills and they're not emotionally as confident I'm finding. And that's a, Across the board, um, I found that earlier in the year before I was in this full-time position. You, you, you always ask, what did you guys do last year? Oh, we missed camp because of COVID. So you've got to go back and then think about what did they miss last year and what's that going to have as a direct impact. And then uh, as a facilitator, yeah, go to your bag of tricks, go to your, uh, go to your list and go back to maybe not thinking that they're a year nine group that you're working with, but they're really year eight, what their experience has been especially if it's, a, if it's a sequential program, whether it's a one-day leadership program or it's a 15-day bushwalk. Um, it's it's got to be those things. Laura? I found this past summer, uh, summer campers were completely different than pre-pandemic. They were more independent, for better or for worse, because I imagine a lot of them were at home with their parents and their parents were like, you know, just I'm, I have to work right now, just grab your own snack, grab your own game, amuse yourselves. And so they get back to this camp group setting and they're just helping themselves to the snacks and going from group to group, deciding which one's more fun and which ones they want to do. And I love seeing how independent these kids have gotten, but having to keep in mind that like, yes, they're now more independent than they've ever been, but they also still need to figure out like how to deal with a group again. Like they've just completely lost that ability and how to, how to cooperate and not do just what they want to do right now. Um, I've, I've found having that kind of extra layer of front loading directions, right. It becomes that much more important. Um, things like that, where you have to just keep that in mind that yes, they, they can do things. They found out they can do far more things for themselves than they've ever been able to do. <laughs> And how to how to use that to our advantage instead of just trying to herd cats all day. As I've mentioned, I've got a five-year-old and my five-year-old dealt with mask wearing much better than every adult that I interacted with. Her adaptability is certainly something that I won't take for granted when I'm working with kids of that age. Danielle? Yeah, the, the mask wearing is kind of what I, I wanted to bring up. I work in treatment center, therapeutic, behavioral health with adults and older people and mental health in crisis in mental health, <laughs> even their adaptability has been pretty impressive in terms of like creating safety and seeing new people and having the mask and then just the intensity. Yeah. Big difference. 
openness for the facility to allow more outdoors, that's definitely a change. And then also just people's more openness because they want to break from their mask. Because at the, one of the facilities that I'm at right now, they were back to residential. They're in residential treatment, having to wear a mask in their residence. It's tough. <laughs> but people are, even the oldest people with so many physical obstacles and mental, emotional obstacles, are still, uh, still adapting. Thank you all so much for taking this question on. I, I'm remembering in the summer of 2020, some of us at High Five gathered to sort of practice gathering and also um, practicing some activities that would work with physical distancing and within COVID protocols. And I remember realizing quickly, I think through it, like just the feeling of it, not so more intellectual of like, you know, this is a time to take away as many rules as we can. And it kind of reminds me of what you were saying, Laura, like, you know, if we have to remind folks to wear their masks properly, we have to remind them to stay six feet apart. Then we have to remind them like there's 15 rules of key punch. Maybe this is the time to play open-ended co-created parallel play games because we're attending to the rules of our own personal safety in a higher way. Like that was really huge. And I don't even know if we ever named it, I think it was just sort of a, a thing that we did and I don't know if I'll go back. Like I just feel like in terms of rules and then the other piece was, you know, having conversations around privilege and decentralizing power. Like where can we give some of that up? I think that's the other piece that plays into, you know, like having like f- just fewer rules in my facilitation. And I'm talking about like games and stuff. I'm not talking about like, well, I don't have to belay anymore. Like, you know, the, the fundamentals are still there, but I think just really examining where can I, like still have like the fundamental essence of the activity without so many consequences and rules. It's been amazing to see how much you can peel away and still have it work. I don't remember if we, I don't remember if we named it, but I think that there was this, this notion that we, we've, they've already got so much to worry about. We've always got already got so much to talk about that adding on these extra layers of all these rules was, a, was a challenge. I think that in terms of like attention, people's ability to attend to all of the information you're sharing trying to know to reduce that and make it easier for understanding i think it's so been so helpful um the other thing i would add is the the discussion around emotions i think has been something that i won't stop doing i was doing beforehand but more intentionally now really having good conversation about how we're feeling in the moment and talking about emotional literacy and having that uh combined with Concepts like uh, comfort zones and things like that, like the combination of all of these different elements that maybe we were all familiar with, but having discussions with our participants and spending the time to do it. We've always, I think most of us have know the, uh, the adage of connection before content, but also considering emotional conversations also maybe have to be included within that uh, before we go into content. Tom Leahy, I was recently in a, a workshop with him talking about um, traumatic events. And just this awareness of, that some of the pandemic has elicited in people some very traumatic responses that we have to be much more aware of as facilitators. For me, I'm much more aware of how people are coming into a space, how we're gathering into the space, and not taking for granted that I know how they're coming in, um, which in the past I might have assumed certain things um, that weren't that helpful. I noticed in the chat, 
Armin, would you be willing to jump on uh, and talk about your perspective as a student? Because there's a lot of professionals who are in the industry as professionals, and I think you've got a different lens than some of us, which is which be valuable from the perspective of being a student. Uh, so I'm an Germain. I'm from Ontario. I go to school in Sudbury. And uh, yeah, like I've noticed just with class sizes, like with the outdoor program that I'm in, I've noticed there's like a huge decline and a lot less funding. Um, our school got hit with a, uh, a budget. So we got like a lot less um, funding for our school. And our program was hit because we got a lot of cuts. Um, there's a lot of cuts made. And from that, we don't have a lot of money to go into our program. So now our program shifting around on how to survive these cuts. And I think that's drawing students away from coming along with a lot of screen time, people are like not interested in outdoors and stuff because it's like, why go outside when I can play video games or like all my schools online. So yeah, it's from that perspective, it's kind of like, it's really tough to see because it's like you want there to be a future in the outdoors, but without students coming in and being more stable, uh, it becomes a lot more difficult and the jobs become less and less for the area you're in which means you'll have to move further away from home to find like more better jobs. And again, like what you're saying before young adults want more money out of it. And I find that's true because, you know, in the world where everything is becoming way more expensive, they have to make a living to be able to be like to sustainable. So I find that a lot of students are sacrificing what they love to get a better pay, which ultimately ruins their like mental health. So yeah, from a student's perspective, it's really difficult to see that and seeing like what our future may look like in the outdoor industry. Yep, that's my perspective on it. <laughs> it's sad, but I mean, hopefully there's a big turnaround. I know that dude will like with COVID and everyone being inside and not being out- outdoors, it is affecting mental health. And you do see people wanting to go outside because it's almost like, the only remedy at this point to draw away from on the screen, indoor, indoor environments. So hopefully there's a turnaround and people realize there's more for them in the outdoors than medications or talking to therapists and stuff. Cause when I'm stressed and I'm, I'm overwhelmed, a simple walk through the woods and I'm feeling energized and back to new, but a lot of people that don't like the outdoors are now fear it they don't understand that. So they're never going to go to the outdoors to find that. So it's like, we have to find a way to bring people outside to get them out there. Like huge, like the huge volume is young adults because they just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your perspective. Hutch, I know that you work in higher ed and you probably have something to contribute. Well, you know, I, I think the, one of the things I'm hearing and what Armand's talking about as well is, is a question of ability, right? So if outdoor programs aren't there to bring students out, to give them the skills and abilities, they don't have those skills and talents to go into the backcountry, right? You can't, you can jump on a video game and do a tutorial in five minutes and figure out how to, how to shoot whatever you're shooting or build whatever you're building. But there, there's not like the similar tutorial in how to hang a bear bag or, you know, dig a cat hole or things like that. And so getting out into the backcountry and getting into the woods isn't as intuitively easy to just jump into, I don't think. But, but one of the things that 
that I've seen that's given me an immense amount of hope. I, I live in, in a part of New Hampshire that people love to come and, and vacation in and, and re- recreate in. And Mount Monadnock, which is here in the town that I live in, has never been as overwhelmed as it is over the last 18 months. Um, like to the point where they would close the mountain and you would have to register online to be able to hike, to do a day hike on the mountain. Every trailhead all around New Hampshire, you couldn't find parking. Um, I know uh, Acadia National Park had the busiest year they have ever had in their entire history last year. So there's an immense amount of people that are going into the backcountry, getting out of the city, getting out of the suburbs, getting away from their computers to do that. But the parallel of that also is that I, I, I know there's been a lot of accidents. There's been a lot of folks that have been have damaging trails and, and you know, and all sorts of issues that are happening that come from lack of knowledge and lack of ability. And I think there's something in there that, you know, who are the folks that give that skill and ability and training and, and it's us. Right. And so, so I think there's a market in there and there's a, a, a moment in there and a place in there that we need to step into because I think Armand's right uh, that if folks don't get that experience and don't know what they can do, then they're not going to choose to go do that. But we also see a huge influx of people that are going into those wild places to do all those things and, you know, need those skills. So how do we get ourselves in between, right? And get into that spot. So we're pulling in folks who wouldn't otherwise have the skills, but also empowering the folks that are trying to get out and doing those things. And, and I think, you know, the figuring out that little niche and to me, I think that's exciting you know, that there is, there's some great opportunity in that because if we can get folks while this is also happening in a larger construct of folks thinking more intentionally about their impact on the earth and their impact in climate change and their impacts, the way that their actions impact others around them, there, there could be this really wonderful Renaissance moment in the outdoor education field. If we think about it differently from how we've thought about it in the past you know, and to really think about what is the value that we're creating and that we can offer the world. Yeah. You know, these things are all related and, and this kind of rethinking of what we're doing is related. We, we want to pay people more to keep them in the field, but you know, there's no Jeff Bezos of, of outdoor education. Like there's nobody who's raking so much off the top that they're making all the money and, and, and the, the facilitators are getting nothing. Like it's, we haven't for a while had a, a value proposition for the folks that are our clients that is strong enough, high enough to give us the revenue to come in to really be able to pay what we would love to pay. So, you know, we can try to figure out, we can get frustrated with how do we raise the pay and, and, and benefits and help folks kind of make a longer term career in the field. But we really have to think about the value proposition. And that's where this kind of moment of like, we have a world of folks who are disconnected because of technology, who are lacking these experiences outside, who are, are in need of, of trauma informed facilitation, if you will, like basically everything that people are getting out of this conference is what the world needs right now. Right. And who are the folks that have those skills? Well, that's a pretty solid value proposition that all these partner organizations that are part of AEE can be crafting 
right? If you want to figure out how to, to deal with social emotional issues, if you want to, how to feel like how to get people away from their computers, if you're, whatever it is, the physicality that you want to lose our COVID pounds that we put on, like all those things, they're all related and we have those tools. And, and I think if we really look at how do we approach the way we capture value off of the value we create, then we're going to have greater tools, resources, and abilities to then empower and pay the folks that we want to keep in the field um, and to really make it a more sustainable industry overall. I, I do think we're at that pivot moment. This COVID experience isn't an all bad thing. Like there are moments of self-reflection and pivot that I think really we're at that moment. And, and we're the ones that have to figure out how do we take advantage of that moment for that next generation. Thanks to all those who attended and contributed to this episode and last week's episode. In summary of this episode, there are things that this industry needs to work on. There is obviously positive hope towards us figuring it out as a collective. And so thank you to all the contributors who gave some incredible information. Thank you so much for listening. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving us a good guy. <laughs>